Paul Volcker has spent a lifetime in public service, and he is passionate about good government. Mr. Volcker served two terms as chairman of the Fed under Presidents Carter and Reagan, where he is credited with bringing high levels of inflation to an end. After the 2008 financial crisis, he served as economic advisor to President Obama and chairman of the Economic Recovery Advisory Board. During this time, he created the Volcker Rule, which later became part of the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act. In 2013, Mr. Volcker launched the Volcker Alliance to address ineffective public policies and distrusting government. He has degrees from Princeton, Harvard, and the London School of Economics, and has had multiple prominent positions in the public and private sector. He joins us on this WooCast to talk about public service, why government is in desperate need of a makeover, and his vision for good governance. Mr. Volker, thank you so much for being here today for a conversation about public service. You have been a proponent and a champion of public service your whole career, and so you really are the right person, I think, for us to talk to about this. So just starting off, public service is clearly something you hold in very high esteem. And so can you define for us what you actually mean by public service and why you think it's so important for young people to go into public service? Well, I think public service is important because government is important. Let's start with that fundamental. I think uh, government's important to civilization. Government's important in the United States. Government is in trouble right now. Uh, it's no secret for anybody in the United States, but a lot of other places, too, and it's in trouble at different levels. Uh, if government's going to work right, we have to have good people in government, and that's becoming increasingly difficult, actually. And I do think I kind of made a life of thinking that engaging yourself in public service in government directly can be a source of considerable satisfaction when it works out right. Can be a source of a lot of frustration too. So we've got to get the balance right between the satisfaction and the frustration. But I do think it is important, and it's not in style anymore in many universities and elsewhere, including I suspect Princeton, <laughs> to the extent I would like to see it anyway. Uh, you know, the very few students are turned on for understandable reasons for going into government. I think we got to begin reversing that, but it's all part of uh, a decline in respect for government generally, which I think is dangerous. So why do you think at this point in history we're seeing this decline? Uh, it's hard to know. I mean, it's a, it's a time of confusion. Uh, obviously, internationally, things are very upset and without any uh, clear sense of message that we had, let's say, when I was here back in World War II and after World War II. And, United States was leaving the world, and everybody wanted to go into government. Everybody was excited. Uh, that sense of mission is gone, and for a lot of reasons, which I can't uh, totally explain, but it certainly is not what it used to be. And it never will be again in the sense that the United States isn't in a dominant, as dominant a position as it was. But still, this country has a lot to contribute to the world, but it's got a lot of, to contribute to itself in better government services. Do you think the distaste is for government per se, or is it for politics? Politics is involved in government, and they're inseparable. But uh, part of my mission at the moment is to improve the execution of public policies, uh, whether the policies are left, right, or center. Uh, whatever is decided as a reasonable policy ought to be well executed. And sometimes it is, but too often it is not. We had too many examples when it was not. Uh, executed well. 
So that's an important part of the problem, in the sense that it isn't executed well. But, you know, um, look, I don't like to go to Washington anymore because it oozes lobbyists, it oozes money. I didn't used to feel that way, but there is a major question as to the extent to which our government is being distorted by the power of money and lobbying. So when you came to speak here at the Woodrow Wilson School a couple years ago, you you gave a wonderful talk based on this theme, and one of the things you said that you, was that you thought skepticism has actually turned into cynicism. Right. So is that part of the problem of yes, how well, people I, see government? I, I think it's a fundamental reflection of the problem. Look, when people ask, I may have the latest figure a little wrong, but there's a standard question that pollsters have asked for 20, 30 years. Do you trust your government to do the right thing most of the time? doesn't sound so difficult, you know. 51% of the time, do they get it right? People answer that question now. Uh, 20% or less say they trust their government to do the right thing most of the time. Now, if you ask them whether they like the Congress, it's even less. And it's also true if you ask journalists. Uh, journalism is not very high either. All these institutions are under attack. Uh, but I, I think it's important we get some sense of respect and effectiveness back into a very basic thing, good government in the United States. Do you think the ire is directed mostly at the federal government, or do you think people distrust their state and municipal governments Well, as I much? think the, the polls actually tend to say that distrust is more in the federal government than the local, but local doesn't come off too well either. <laughs> but I, I must say, from the standpoint of a student and somebody interested in government, uh, you may get more satisfaction, more sense of responsibility for getting things done if you're in local government or state government where you're, in a way, closer to the action and where action is needed. And I think a lot of young people have found avenue for satisfaction in local government. I was going to ask a question precisely about that is so, you know, I think especially this afternoon you'll meet students who are committed to service. And so if you could give them some advice about how to serve best, what would you tell them to do? It's a tough question now. I get more complaints, and one of the things I worry about is how difficult it is if you want to work for the federal government to get a job in the federal government and to get it with any degree of efficiency in the sense that they say, yeah, we'd like you to come, come back and talk about it six months later where students can't wait until uh, six months later. But it is true that in many cases, government has a federal government has a big bureaucracy and it's got a classification system, and you start at the bottom, and you gradually work your way up, and sometimes it's hard to get through the bureaucracy, and it's maybe easier in state and local governments that are smaller and more flexible. But there are lots of interesting things to do in the federal government, too. If someone wants to work in service, this might be a tough question, but, you know, if someone who's sort of committed to governance, good governance, but has a distaste for the political theater that's going on, what advice would you give to that person? Well, I, I think that is a tough question. So you go to work for the Federal Reserve, that's a little removed from the political theater. No, but, I, uh, you know, it works both ways. A lot of people go into government these days to get closer to the political side. There's much more attraction, I think, unfortunately, in relative terms, to go up on Capitol Hill and work on a Senate staff or a Senate, senator himself or a congressman and participate in this political byplay. And we need good people up there, but it's a little out of balance, I think, that it becomes more interesting to work in a non-executive position than in an executive position. Right. 
So um, as a dedicated public servant, could you share with us your own path to service? What motivated you to go into service and and how have you, how has it changed over the years? You have an amazing biography. You go to college, you go to graduate school, you go look for jobs. <laughs> uh, and I was basically in economics, but I had a uh, relationship to public service too, so I was natural, I guess, when I got out of, uh, well, actually, when I got out of college, I went to work for the Federal Reserve Bank in New York, but I was on a way station on the graduate school. Well, when I got out of graduate school, I uh, I had spent one summer in the Treasury, and I'd go back to the Treasury, but I had a good time. I'd go back to the Federal Reserve, and I was looking for a job, and I was getting married, so uh, there I went. But I, I was basically interested in job and government one way or another for whatever reason. I, as an economist, it was kind of natural, you know, you were interested in public policy. and. But do you think today young people who might have an interest in finance and sort of uh, fiscal policy with the salaries that Wall Street offers, is that just, it's just so hard for government to compete for good talent because of the salaries that are coming out? The salaries are always, you know, below the private sector, but now it's particularly for the young people that you choose between going to Wall Street and working like crazy, but... uh, with the prospect of getting pretty well paid down the road, even before you get the really big money. Uh, but it's a question of whether you got to decide whether you get the same satisfaction or not. And a lot of people are sitting there on Wall Street, and they're working very hard, and they're making pretty good money, but they're not very happy about what they're doing. <laughs> now, some people, uh, if, if you're real intent to seeing how much money you can make, don't go into government. Right. At least don't go into government until you made all the money. Right. I think um, some people say that another competition, if you will, for young talent from for government is the entrepreneurial sector. You know that everyone wants to start their own company or nonprofit yes. or whatnot. How much is that really well, you know, cutting there, into talent? There's a lot more feeling about that now than there was when I was young. And I, if that is where your yen is, go ahead, <laughs> go go be an entrepreneur. That's what my I got. Two grandchildren are in the process of doing that. I understand <laughs> uh, the desire, and some of them will be successful, and some won't. But I mean, that's uh, there's nothing the matter with <laughs> doing that. But I, I don't think everybody can do it. And if your interest is broader than that, or different than that, think about government. Has government gotten so big that part of the frustration? that people might feel going into it is that the bureaucracy is is so big yeah. that it's really hard to make a difference. Well, that's true of the federal government, I think, at least the fear. Now, that's one of the reasons why local and state government may be more attractive, where a young person can get in a very influential position, partly by accident maybe sometimes, but the opportunities are, are considerable. If the federal government does have a more stultified uh, bureaucratic aspect, which you've got to work on to to deal with that. But you know, the federal government now, one of the things that's become obvious, people don't understand it. The size of the civilian labor force in the U.S. government is no bigger now than it was in the Kennedy years. How many years ago was that? 60 years ago? 50 years ago? And because there's a lot of pressure to keep the employment down, but the government's spending a lot more money. So some of the critical positions in in the federal government are outsourced. 
the functions are outsourced. And one of the key issues is uh, who is minding the store, <laughs> so to speak. Uh, uh, these outside contractors being properly overseen, are the contracts drawn up appropriately? And I think in a lot of cases, the answer is no. Now, who is minding that store? Are you sitting here at the Woodrow Wilson School training people so that they can deal with uh, contractors who have big legal force and big technical force and are going to try to extract as much money as they can out of the federal government? Which side of that equation do you want to be on? Right. So do you think that was part of the problem with the uh, Affordable Care Act rollout? Was that well, so much would have been contracted uh, out? Uh, affordable care was outsourced. <laughs> and for whatever reason, it was not done effectively. And there's a classic case of loss of confidence in government. They couldn't get it straight. Now, there was a lot of political pressure to find problems in it. Uh, but that was an outstanding case. The case that many people talk about still now is Hurricane Katrina, where you had a new agency that was supposed to be expert in... Uh, dealing with natural disasters and other disasters. It was highly politicized and fell flat on its face. But, you know, I, I worry about more trivial things. Nobody questioned the Secret Service and its competence and reliability. Uh, and then you begin reading stories about drunkenness and prostitution and all this stuff. You wonder what's going on. And that's happened with other respected right. agencies, too. So. We've got to maintain a discipline and an ethic too often has been lacking. And that's what I sense, you know, and all the money converging on Washington is kind of lost. And it also seems, too, that with the 24-hour news cycle, even small things get blown up in the news cycle. And the time it takes to repair the damage from bad publicity takes so much longer than it used to. And the good things are overlooked. I always like to point out people... I'm very unhappy about government. Do you really want to get along without the Center for Disease Control? Every time a new bug comes along, where is the government? And and there is a feeling of great competence in that age. I hope it's justified, and it has been through the years. But, but there's an example of where government is absolutely essential and necessary, and it better have good people in it. The FDA better have good people in there to make a very difficult balancing decision between new drugs and which ones are safe and which ones are not safe. And, uh, you know, enormous challenges in government. And I suppose if you're a young nuclear engineer going to NASA isn't the worst thing in the world when you're sending people up to figure out what's going on in Mars and so forth. Where else can you do it? Now, they're probably, re I'm sure they're relying on a lot of outsourcing too, but is there somebody in the government, enough people in the government to allocate those funds correctly, see what the outsourcers, the contractors are doing, what are they doing it most effectively? I mean, there are all sorts of challenges in government that can provide a lot of challenge for somebody that's interested and a lot of satisfaction in getting it right. Do you think part of the problem is that um, government, because of funds or because of bandwidth, um, doesn't necessarily tell its own good story enough. So for people across the country, sometimes it gets lost even the things that they like, You're that it's to, actually government. Uh, I don't know if it's a hypocritical story, but, you know, the story went around about the person saying, get government out of my Medicare. No, no, <laughs> and no, so, I, like, absolutely. you know, there's an educating to remind people about the services that government gives, right? I mean, the classic one that's been around for, forever, of course, 
is Social Security. Yes, exactly. I don't know how many millions of people on Social Security, but, you know, it seems to work pretty well. You get the check arrives in your bank account or it arrives by a check or whatever, and a lot of people are dependent upon it. And you don't read many scandals about Social Security. I'm sure somebody will dig some up, but most of the people that that are entitled to it, get it, and they know what they're getting, and they're getting according to a correct formula, and it's done reliably and, and efficiently. Uh, now, probably it can be done even more efficiently, but that's right. okay. That's a nice challenge. But you're right. That's That story isn't told, but yet if the government shuts down and people start yes. stop getting their Social Security checks, that story certainly told. So people don't yeah. necessarily, they but, see government as getting in the way of their getting this, but don't necessarily give it credit for them getting it in the first place. Well, the mandate in the Treasury back when I was there, the, this debt ceiling problem is always a problem. So, okay, we can't issue any debt. Maybe we can't send out the Social Security checks this month. That'll get their attention. <laughs> That's <laughs> but, right. So you have such an amazing career, Trace. Can you just tell us, looking back, what are if you could say like two of the highlights of your your, and you can be more if you want, but of your well, career. Uh, I tell you, I, I've been out of government quite a long time now. I'm right. Like you, can, you can talk about other things in your career no, that I, you've enjoyed no, doing. No, but when you say that, I, uh, I just think of two things outside of government, outside of government directly. When, you know, by whatever accident, I was asked to lead an investigation into the U.N. oil for food program and the corruption therein, which had become a big political issue. And, a big issue for the Secretary General, who himself was accused of being part of a corrupt process. And uh, we put together an investigation, and I was wise enough at that stage to tell them this is going to cost a lot of money, and I don't want any problem in getting enough money to hire the right people to do the job. But we had a, a force of investigators and uh, attorneys from around the world that were interested in the subject. And they were all turned on because the objective was very clear. And they not, well, these were largely experienced people. They'd never done anything quite so exciting in their life as they thought this investigation was. And it was eye-opening to me to see how professional investigators could, with zeal, go about finding things I never thought they could find. And we made a series of reports. I think we were very good, demonstrated a lot of stuff, raised a lot of rumpus here and there. That was the good side, because here was a case of attorneys coming in mostly from government, some from private, who were obviously excited by, by the challenge. The disappointing part was uh, look forward to the UN instituting great reform so that it wouldn't happen again, and one wondered how deep it went. No, I think we did have some impact. And the World Bank followed this where I conducted an investigation into corruption in World Bank programs, not so much the World Bank itself, but in their, in their programs. And the World Bank was not very happy about this. They didn't want to be uh, investigated <laughs> and have their programs reviewed. Uh, but they had to do it. And again, it was we had a very good report. They adopted the whole report. From beginning to end, it's still, I think, effective in the World Bank and has changed the approach of the World Bank. And, you know, there were two things in my old age. Yeah, that's <laughs> terrific. Uh, but, you know, in the government itself, I was the principal guy in the Treasury in charge of international financial stuff as well as domestic. And when we went off gold and devalued, and that's an experience you don't have <laughs> very often being right there when 
a major change was made in the international financial system. Because of the Volcker Rule, you will yes. you will be forever known, and so you've you've gotten into the vernacular. Does that are you proud of that? Well, it's kind of interesting. You know, it was a great surprise to me that the president had a little press conference where he was announcing uh, his support for Dodd Frank, and, and particularly this rule. And he turns to me and said, "We're going to call it the Volcker Rule." I didn't <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I had not heard it, but now right there I am. But it's a good rule. It's a it's a really important <laughs> rule. I hope I hope it's followed as you know well, as so carefully as you constructed it. So yeah. Looking back, this is always a hard question. And um, would you do anything differently? Not a thing, Howard. No, I, <laughs> I, you know, the things that make you go in one avenue or another, or some usually an accident of some sort. Right. That's, uh, uh, so you just wait for the accident to happen. <laughs> I think that's terrific advice for young people in some ways, right? Sometimes yeah. they want their whole roadmap laid yeah, out for them and, uh, you know, they miss the accidents. Uh, uh, entrepreneurial talent, they're going to be an entrepreneur. Half of those entrepreneurial ventures are not going to work out. So that, right. uh, uh, the other half that does, and if you take satisfaction, the zest for the chase, it's all fine. But my career has been fairly straightforward. I didn't exactly follow a map. <laughs> I never imagined when I was a junior person in the Federal Reserve that I was going to be chairman of the Federal Reserve at a, at a difficult time, but that's... So speaking of your time there, um, you have had times where you've had to make decisions that were not politically popular. Um, so one of the questions we had is, how did you go about dis, you know, the process of taking the stand that you knew was right? Yeah, well, I, I was pretty single-minded about what the challenge was before the Federal Reserve at that time, but... And, you know, it was not popular in one sense, and there was a lot of opposition. And, but, in fact, you can say, well, very strong action, tremendously high interest rates that never expected to happen. And how did it happen? How did it go on? It went on because, I'm convinced of this, that at that time, for different reasons than now, there was a feeling that the wheels were going off the economy, so to speak. You're going through a decade of so-called stagflation. The inflation rate was rising. Everybody was assuming the inflation rate would go up. They were changing their behavior. It made them uneasy, and they were prepared to swallow distasteful stuff if they thought that this was an honest attempt to do something about the economy. Now, if this had gone on another two years or something, I probably would have been guillotined, but... Fortunately, things turned better before I got killed. <laughs> right. And, uh, but, you know, it happened because the public was ready for it. Right. And they, they weren't ready for 20% interest rates. They didn't know what they were ready for, but uh, they were ready for somebody to take a strong position. But it sounds like you'd made the decision. You knew it was right, so. Well, because my, my bag was <laughs> stability. And right. <laughs> Right. And d dealing with inflation, so that was pretty right. single-minded. That's you must have had some ability, though, to tune out the noise of the news cycle and whatnot that perhaps politicians well, today don't have. Well, you know, I was lucky President Carter, who uh, appointed me, couldn't say much about it because he, he just appointed me, and there was only a couple of years left. Uh, and he kind he underappointed me because he recognized it was a problem. I guess a lot of advice. Because uh, he he knew that he didn't know what he was in for, but he knew he was in for for difficulty. And then you had President Reagan, who I am sure, in my mind, I was not close to him, 
but I'm sure that his view was that, you know, something was the matter. I'm not going to criticize this guy when he's not he's not part of my team or whatever. I inherited him, but he seems to be trying to do what he sees when I'm not going to bother him. I'm not going to get on his back. His staff didn't necessarily agree with that <laughs> view. Right, right. <laughs> but he did, so uh, at least that's my interpretation. So that was... That helped in the political atmosphere when you didn't have the. If the president of the United States had been on my back, yeah, life would have been more difficult. Let's talk a little bit about your papers. I know the university is incredibly grateful for your donation of your public service papers, and they'll be housed at Mud Library. Um, and so this is our archive library where people can come and scholars can come and use the papers. What's your vision? How would you want scholars to use your papers? Oh, they're gonna look very deeply into the success of my policies and the wisdom of all my decisions. Of course. <laughs> Obviously. And they're not going to no. question anything. They're just, no. you're right. No. <laughs> well, I know, I know that the university is uh, quite grateful that you gave the papers, and I think well, uh, it'll be a good opportunity well, for scholars to Well, I want to inspect it. The odd, interesting thing is Jim Baker, who went to Princeton, Secretary of the Treasury, part of the time I was in Chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, so we had a certain relationship, uh, harmonious at times, less than harmonious at other times. And when I came and looked, there was a whole lot of Jim Baker's papers. Mine would be on the shelf right below Jim Baker, so that scholar interested in that period can, right. doesn't have to go very far. You can look at the Baker shelf or the Volcker shelf to right. see what the conflicting views were. Right. And of course, He'll know the Volcker rule, but not the Baker rule. <laughs> yeah. right. Well, Baker had a few rules of his own. Yeah, yeah, right, right. <laughs> so this is terrific. I really appreciate it. Thank you yeah. so much. You've been listening to the Woodrow Wilson School's WooCast. This podcast was produced by Elizabeth Donahue and Bonalise Rosado. Music by Daniel Sturm. Follow us on Twitter at Wilson School. <laughs>